You know, there's sort of a bluster I had for much of my life, um, a feeling of being, you know, an invincibility that I think a lot of people feel, but there was a bubble that was kind of burst that this feeling like if this, if I'm the kind of person who can step into traffic and almost kill myself, what else? What else is there? What else is wrong with me? You know, what else is broken? That's Andrew Kerr, and this is The Sound of You. Hey, hey, my friends. Welcome back. It's me, Davin Youngs, and this is The Sound of You. And I'm happy that you are here joining me for this conversation that I had with someone who I think you're going to find to be incredibly fascinating. His name is Andrew Kerr, and he is amongst many other things, a gifted and talented singer-songwriter who has been down a somewhat winding road with his voice and singing and music and quite honestly, his life. You know, I was thinking that I will never forget the first time I met Andrew because I actually heard him singing at the top of his lungs, walking down the hallway to the space that we were going to meet in before I even saw him. And I learned quickly that this is how Andrew sort of approaches his life. It's how he enters a scene, so to speak. But what you'll hear in this conversation is that Andrew candidly shares that that energy and fervor and bluster, as he refers to it, has at times led him down complicated paths. In fact, it led him into the path of an oncoming truck, which you are going to hear all about. What's so great about this conversation is that Andrew is so successful in understanding the integration of these life events with the journey that he went on with music and his voice. And he speaks so clearly and with so much wisdom about how changing his voice and following the path of deconstructing and reconstructing his voice as an instrument was a key component in changing his whole life. So sit back, listen, enjoy, and just soak in these incredibly wise words from my friend and former client, Andrew Kerr. Okay, so it was about 10 years ago, I was crossing the street in Evanston, and I was hit by a city truck. Um, I was thrown 21 feet in the air. Uh, I got uh, sustained three skull fractures and a broken arm, and, uh, and I was rushed to Evanston Hospital and spent about two weeks in in the hospital there recovering i had emergency brain surgery that first night because i had hemorrhaging in my brain so i had an emergency craniotomy um carved a huge c-shaped scar open in the side of my head one of the things coming out of it that i remember so vividly is in the weeks that followed you know, I was coming out of a heavy drug, uh, you know, drugs they had given me. Everything was very hazy. I was aware enough to know that 
I didn't know if I was brain injured. I didn't know, you know, I know what it's like. You hear about people who seem completely normal, except that they, you know, except that they're violent once in a while, or they, they just have never been the same and something's shifted. And I genuinely had no idea if I was a different person, if I had had some kind of, you know, injuries that would have permanently changed who I was. And that was a terrifying feeling. So I went through, you know, cognitive therapy of different kinds. Um, I mean, different kinds of sort of uh, rehab and therapy. They determined that they didn't think I had any cognitive issues. You know, I still didn't know if something would come up years later in my life, if I'd have some kind of recurring things, migraine headaches in 20 years, whatever it might be. I also didn't remember exactly what had happened. I was crossing the street, I knew that, and then I woke up in the hospital. We ended up in a lawsuit with the city. We ended up going, going to trial and I lost the trial. What I found out from the trial was basically I was just, it appears and it sounds like I was distracted crossing the street. I forgot something in my car. I probably spun around at some point. Did not see a large truck barreling down the street. You know, I mean, it's kind of those things where I, the truck wasn't there a second ago. I have a feeling they came out from around a the corner. They were also speeding. Um, but I didn't notice them. I didn't check for them before I turned around. So what I learned from the trial basically was this was mostly my own fault. What I was left faced with in the months that followed was this feeling like I had done this to myself and that I, I did not know how to forgive myself. Just the, the thought that I could have done this to myself um, and there was no one else to blame. There was no scapegoat. A scapegoat just felt like, you know, I didn't know what to do. So what were the implications for this sense of responsibility or culpability? I mean, in your words, you had done this to yourself. What did that mean for your life in that moment? You know, there's sort of a bluster I had as a younger, for much of my life, um, a feeling of being, you know, an invincibility I think a lot of people feel, but there was a bubble that was kind of burst that this feeling like if this, if I'm the kind of person who can step into traffic and almost kill myself, what else? What else is there? What else is wrong with me? You know, what else is broken? Yeah. I say this not to make light of what you're saying, but it sounds like the sort of existential moment that only getting hit by a truck could bring. Yeah. Um, but I also love this description you offer of yourself as a blustery young person. And I wonder if you could tell us more about yourself, um, particularly as it relates to growing up and music and singing. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in, I grew up in New York city. I, um, didn't feel like I sort of had found, found my place in high school where I fit in and somewhere along the way I found theater and people applauding for me on stage and, and, you know, and people coming up to me afterwards saying how talented I was. And it, it, uh, suddenly was like, Oh my God, I have like a thing. I have value. You know, I have something that, that gives me value. 
so that's kind of where where it started. And then I went off to college. I studied some theater. I started um, doing stand-up comedy because I wanted people to clap for me. I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to be loved more than anything else. I think I just wanted to feel validated. Um, so that brought me on stage performing. Somewhere along the line, I think uh, around in my early 20s or maybe around 20, late teens, early 20s, you know, I had been playing music as well um, and I had been performing and I found that I felt so vulnerable performing that I didn't think I could stomach the rejection that came with being an actor um, and being in theater. So I sort of thought music, what I loved about music was that no matter what happened at the gig, you know, at the performance, uh, I still had the song. I still had the actual music. And that felt like there was something sustaining and solid that I could fall back on. And I was really into songwriting. I was into James Taylor and singer-songwriters and Indigo Girls and sort of a lot of folky stuff. And, you know, I started playing open mics and they might be terrible gigs, but I still could go home and, you know, have something that fed me that wasn't just dependent on, like when I did stand-up, it felt like if they laughed, I was in heaven. If they didn't laugh, I was devastated. And I, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. It's too much. Um, so that's kind of what got me into music and, and performing and touring throughout my 20s um, as a singer-songwriter. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny what you're saying because I'm aware that we all have these different perceived levels of risk when it comes to performing and sharing. And I certainly can connect with the idea that stand-up comedy is so risky and vulnerable. Um, But theater, to me, is a safer space in that, you know, you have a prescribed um, outcome versus writing and sharing your own songs. Uh, It just seems like there's so much at stake in that and yet you found that to be uh, a safer space to occupy. Yeah, it's a, no, it's an interesting point. I think, and I think the thing I always liked about songwriting was the kind, you know what it is? I think that, I think back on songwriting for me, I often didn't even, you know, for example, I wouldn't know what I was writing about in a song and the song would be moving along. And then suddenly, you know, I'd write a chorus that just came to me and I'd start sobbing and I'd go, oh, you know, that's what the song's about. I, I think I didn't have great access to what, why, what I was really feeling, a lot of my own feelings and a lot of what I was experiencing. And my, you know, I, I tended to be clever, you know, funny, cute. And then there'd be something in a song that would come up and go, oh, my God, this isn't even about that. This is about this, you know, devastating, like, loneliness of mine. Um, something like that. So I, I think it had turned out to be very therapeutic for me that I didn't have, I hadn't had any therapy of any kind. And it was a means of sort of getting in touch with something that felt very sort of genuine and real. I worry too much for a man of my age. I'm angry too often for a man without rage. I scare much too easy for a man without fear. I cry much too often for a man without tears and I've learned Yeah, that's so interesting and maybe that there was a safety um, a safety almost in working that out through that medium. Yeah, that makes sense. Like it's kind of like you're alone in your room doing your thing, writing your song and then you kind of get your brain around it and then can go out and share it. And it's not like I was um, you know, I I was pretty good at expressing myself, but now when I look back, I was, you know, 10% of the way there. 
Um, I didn't really know what was going on sort of inside my head. Uh, so that's kind of, that was the appeal to me for it was songwriting and performing. It was never about singing per se when I was younger. When I was younger, it was about being on stage and then I found songwriting, I loved it. And I never really had any real training for singing at that point. Um, and I wasn't a great singer, you know? I, I kind of fought my way through whatever came instinctively. Um, so that's kind of the groundwork for my vocal style when I, you know, when I met you and earlier in my life too. Well, let's, let's unpack that a bit more. Yeah. Um, how would you describe your relationship to your voice at that time? And, and maybe specifically, how did that influence how you were writing songs? So, you know, I think, I think one thing that I, I recognize looking back, I, I could never really hear myself. I never really knew, you know, heard myself truly in, in, in a sort of critical way. And I think underneath it, there was this, um, you know, my pitch was not good. Um, I mean, more than anything, my pitch was not good. My tone was not particularly, you know, not particularly powerful or, or moving. So I relied on, I found that if I wrote clever songs, that allowed me to kind of hold the audience, carry the audience. So it kind of moved me in that direction. Um, but I think I, I, in a, in a, in this, in this sort of powerful way that I look back on, I couldn't hear myself because I was too afraid to hear myself. Because if I, if I truly heard all my, you know, weaknesses, um, I'd be too devastated to keep going. And there was something about sort of, I have this, when I was younger, what carried me on was delusional optimism, you know, this sort of just push forward don't hear anything that says otherwise and just go. And it got me reasonably, you know, it got me some success just kind of plunging ahead. But but truly underneath it, a, a fear to see all of my flaws and my weaknesses and, and to sort of be vulnerable to that because I was so afraid that, that that would, I mean, I didn't know this, right? But looking back, I know I was too afraid that it would be too much. I'd be overwhelmed and I would stop trying. I would give up. <laughs> Okay, there's so much to dig into here. This is very rich because um, you're speaking to an experience that I think a lot of people who identify as singer-songwriters have where they find themselves writing based on um, an idea or a story around what their voice can or can't do. So, you know, sometimes people will write songs that are fairly limited in scope. Oh, yes. Um, because they don't really understand the capacity that their voice has, or they'll write beyond yeah. uh, their sort of embodied experience of making the sound. And there comes some point in time where inevitably they'll desire to reconcile the two. Right. And, you know, there are certainly stories of people over time who... Um, we're sort of never landed in the realm of being a great singer, but the songs were so rich and wonderful that they carried the voice. But I think there's this universal desire amongst anyone who sings to be able to connect and authentically express right. the words of the song in a way with their voice that feels aligned. Yeah. Um, but from your perspective, based on your experience, what were the repercussions um, for not being able to quote unquote, hear yourself at that time. Yeah. 
I think it stopped me from, um, it, yeah, I continue to get right. Very, I still look back. I'm like, wow, those are some smart lyrics. That is a good phrase. That's really like some impressive writing lyrically, but, uh, but I never, I, I could not become the singer that I heard, that I imagined, that I envisioned, that I wanted to be. I could not get better at singing. It was very limited where I could go because I had never developed any technique. So I was, you know, straining and always flat and not breathing right. And just, I mean, a million things I was doing wrong, but never you know, almost just closing my eyes and covering my ears when I sang and powering through with just more energy. And that didn't make it better. Um, so and also then losing nuance as a result of that, like, you know, just not not developing. If you can't if you can't accept weaknesses, if you can't see your flaws, you can't get better at anything. You know, I mean, yeah, in a fundamental way. Well, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, didn't that powering through that you referred to a bit ago, didn't that show up in your voice um, from a pathology perspective at some point? <laughs> it did. So um, I think about 10 years before I met you, somewhere in my late 20s, I developed um, vocal nodes in my vocal cords and I went on complete total voice rest for like six weeks or something like that, which maybe you can do in your 20s more than you can <laughs> later in your life. Um, but uh, and I ended up getting surgery by a kind of a renowned surgeon in New York um, uh, and fixed it. Um, and then I went back to what I was doing before, you know, um, take it kind of as a fluke, as a whatever it might be, you know, not knowing what it was. Right. Um, and eventually, so I continued doing what I was doing and I was um, I was doing OK and I had some, you know, good moments and, and had some great gigs and had, you know, a little bit of a fan base here and there and so on. And it was going OK. But at some point and this is somewhere um, I mean, this sort of ties into, you know, I continued to sing and do what I was doing. And and then I had can we tie this into the time after the yeah, accident? Yeah. No, let's go there because. Uh, quite honestly, I'm curious what you see as the through line from this first surgery that you had uh, to that fateful day crossing the street in Evanston. Yeah. I mean, what's sort of profound is it, about my accident is that um, it, I still genuinely believe it was the, the, uh, the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And it, it changed my life. And, I, and it took... It sounds corny, but it took being hit by a goddamn truck to to change me. To wake me up, to, to truly have to sort of see myself, you know, in a more honest way. What had happened, I mean, after after I had my accident is I had I had this feeling like I couldn't forgive myself. And I went into therapy for the first time in my life. And, you know, it, it led me down this path of sort of asking, you know, questions about, look, if if I'm the kind of person that can walk out in front of a truck and almost kill myself, what else? What else is wrong with me? Um, and once I started to sort of, you know, unpack some things, um, it, I realized that I, I started to learn that I could be flawed and still be worthy of love. And at the core of it all, at this feeling of like, am I worthy of parental love? Am I, you know, it's some childhood, it's childhood things that this feeling of like needing validation. And 
And I found that um, in, a, in a fundamental way, like it, it was okay to be imperfect or flawed and to see my own flaws. So I continued performing and I went back to music um, after my accident. I recovered. I, you know, I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what that was like to make music again after your accident. So initially, I, I think I was kind of getting to a phase in my life now where I had um, young kids and a really active, crazy life at home and I'd stopped touring. Um, I'd sort of mourned the loss of this music career that I had dreamed of and, and wanted. But I had started to, at the same time, um, I found music more and more personal and therapeutic for me in a way it had never been before. Um, I had at my shop, I had set up a piano and I used to go there four o'clock in the morning on the weekends, you know, all these times around my three kids at home and my busy schedule just to sing and write songs. And I'd sob in front of my piano and, you know, it was just all for me. And it had never been all for me. It was to be on stage. It was to be loved and, you know, clapped for. And I really didn't care about that anymore. Music had started to become something that, that was really a personal journey for me in a way it had never been before. Um, and so I had been, you know, I had been sort of getting a little better at singing, but I had really specific limitations that I couldn't kind of break through. And somewhere along the line here, um, I started having vocal trouble again. I started not being able to hit notes. I remember going on a tour and I couldn't sing anything above a certain thing and below a certain thing. And I found there's these like spots that I had to jump through and skip through and work around and so on. And so I went to a doctor and he he took a scope of my throat and showed me various, you know, I don't know, nodules and bumps and things that were in there. He said that he thought um, with some occupational therapy or some speech therapy of some kind, it probably would go away and some rest. So he sent me to someone who'd start doing some vocal work with me and to help me with some breathing techniques and so on. Um, and she said, uh, you should consider going to see a really good voice coach who knows proper singing technique. And I was at a point now where I had been through, you know, a year or two of therapy. I was no longer as afraid to be flawed. And I thought, oh, you know, this this can't hurt. I did not know quite what that would lead to and what it would mean. Um, but it seemed like a reasonable step. Yeah, yeah. You know, before we go any further, I, I just want to stop for a moment and acknowledge, Andrew, your ability to connect the dots between um, what was going on in your life emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, developmentally, and your voice story, because this is true for all of us. Um, no one is exempt from this. But yeah. I'm just aware yeah. that when we hear this through a story like yours that has some dramatic twists and turns along the way, um, that becomes a clarity to our understanding of the connection. And you seem to have such a wonderful awareness of this. And it, and it leads me to my next thought, which is around readiness, yeah. because it is often that we have to experience a series of events to finally be ready yes. and able to hear or receive that which might facilitate change. And I just hear in your story that this was that moment. Yes. And so I'm wondering if you could then speak to what it was like to be in that moment in a place where you were going to finally be learning to, in your words, Ooh. hear your voice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I didn't know what I was signing up for. Right. I just thought, you know, um, uh, I'd like to take voice lessons. It's always been something that I never really, you know, I can't sing as well as I wish I could. And it won't hurt. And clearly I clearly I'm doing something wrong because I've hurt myself for the second time. So why don't I take some voice lessons? Um, so when I came to you, um, I was I was still, you know, I guess the thing that was sort of most um, most profound was that you um, very quickly, you know, kind of told me that I was I was doing a lot wrong um, in my technique. And that in order to change the way I was singing, we had to, there were certain changes and I don't remember the exact way it came about, but, but um, this feeling like fairly quickly when I started following exactly what you told me to do, I could not sing my own songs anymore. I lost my entire vocal range that I had had before because I know, well, I mean, because I was straining, you know, from my chest to hit these notes that should have been in my mix. So I could not do them anymore because I stopped straining. And without the straining, I couldn't sing. So suddenly all the things that gave me comfort and these songs that meant so much to me and, and made me feel like, you know, safe in this little world, I had to, I lost, they lost them. And I remember so explicitly being with you and saying, David, you better bring me back because I am terrified. Like it genuinely was like, I am, I have to give up. You're asking me to give up like the thing that is most precious to me and the risk of having to sort of trust you that you could get me back to a place where I could sing again was so freaking terrifying. Some days my skin is unbearably thin And every loss burns me within well, there's this deconstruction, you know, for, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have, I have um, such respect for someone like you who's able to look at that risk in, in the face and actually pursue it because it, it, there's a deconstruction process that has to happen for most people. And the thing that is so terrifying about it is that which prov like provided you a sense of security in the past needs to be stripped away. But then yeah. quickly you realize that that security was false all along. It was false. So, yeah. so that is, becomes existential as well, where you're like, Sure. It's, you know, it's like that day after getting hit by a truck where you're like, I don't know what I'm, right. who I am if this is not right. the case. So, right. so I appreciate that. And then also like we were talking about, you know, with regards that they're your songs, that they represent this piece of your personal identity. So that is more complicated than someone who is, you know, singing on, in a sure. show or something of someone else's stuff. It's like, no, I sure. can't sing my own music. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I acknowledge and am aware of, of the fear that would come with that. So what was it about you in that moment that allowed you to push on? I mean, it, it, it was it was it was a good six months with you where I felt like I, I could not I, I just could not reach the notes on my own songs. And it was a it was a mess. But I felt like I, I I was ready to take the journey. It felt like I had learned from therapy at this point that it's OK for me to be vulnerable and it's OK for me to give things up and that you have to I have to give this up if I want to have 
you know, if I want something else, if I want to be better, I've got to be willing to be vulnerable. Um, I've learned more since then how profound that lesson kind of is in that truly, like at this point, it was part of my journey to feeling like if I can't be vulnerable, if I can't risk, I don't I don't want to do it. And I don't mean that I want to risk in everything I do, but it is the way to grow. It is the way to become bigger. It's the way to experience life fully. For me, it is by taking that risk and being vulnerable and being real and being open and being okay, being a mess and being okay, doing a lousy job. And just, you know, knowing that underneath it all, I am still going to be worthy of love, even if I can't, you know, even if I fail and fall on my face. Once we started, I mean, I felt it felt like as intense as my as my other therapy had been more so even because I was this was the thing that was my identity. It was the most important thing to me. And I really felt like I was handing this to you and saying, Dad, but I'm trusting you. I am not good at trusting people and I'm trusting you to carry me through this because I didn't know what it, how it was going to get there. I didn't I don't you know the journey as a as a teacher. You've seen it. Right. But it felt like also after, tw- you know, 20 years of singing. I was completely stripping down and deconstructing this thing that I did and having to learn a completely different way of doing it, having no idea except that you telling me so that I would come out the other end. So the level of trust that that it required for me was something also I had not been very good at counting on other people and trusting in other people. So it was a profound experience for me too to trust in you to take me out the other end of this. Well, and I think that the thing is, is, is you're right. I have seen this process through, but, but there's a, a risk on my end too, you know, and, um, and there's a vulnerability for any coach or teacher. There's a vulnerability too of, cause I don't know that I'm going to get you through this, you know, I, and I would be, um, I would, it would be deceiving of me to say that I did because there are so many, Well, you don't know that I'm going to be able to make all the right, you know, take all the right risks, right? You don't, I might shut down a lot of things too, or not be able to be that open. Or that I'll be able to do it with an efficiency that would allow you to stick it out. You know, like that, sure, that sort of sure. pieces is, is see the growth. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and there are, there yeah. are different amounts of time that people can like hang with something. Right. So, um, there are clients that will work on this stuff for years and years and there are clients that are like six months and I'm out, yo. Um, yeah. so, so that, and so well, some that want two weeks and they're out, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> one lesson, fix me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one of the most common things we see, but as you're telling me this, um, I feel increasingly aware of the, the many elements at stake in a partnership or in a relationship like this, because while, um, what was at stake for me was certainly very different than what was at stake for you. There is still this element of, um, when I work with someone like you and I see that we've opened a certain door, yeah. Uh, there's an awareness yeah. that there's no no turning back and yeah. that we have to head down this together and be um, fully committed to seeing the process through. And, um, you know, speaking of process, I wonder if you might then share with us what it was like as things started to shift and change for you. I mean, in, in the big picture, you know, I think after several months of committing to it and really kind of stripping it down, I regained my own songs because, because they had, they weren't particularly vocally challenging. Um, so I started being able to sing my own songs, which gave me enough validation to know 
that this worked, you know, that it's working and that I'm working towards better technique. And then my range started getting better. Um, I started feeling less tired at the end of singing. Um, I could just see, you know, continuing kind of results, which I still, when I sing now, I still find myself like I can, I can hear myself in a way that I never could before. So I can hear even now, if I get tired, I can hear what I'm doing. I can find it. I can kind of pick through it because, you know, when you work with someone who enough being critical of it, I've become good at being self-critical in a lot of areas of my life now. So when I do things, and this is part of that journey of learning how to sort of break down. I'm good at learning now. So I know the steps that it takes to get better at something, right? And this is one of those cases where I can continue to grow because I continue to see, hear myself, see what I'm doing wrong, pick it apart, you know, know kind of where to look when something goes wrong. Yeah, and the just the willingness to... Um to see a problem and and address it without judgment, uh, yeah. versus you know I always I always like to offer that we need to be able to hear ourselves critically and not judgmentally and there's a there's a real specific difference good. between the two because if I start from a place of judgment you know it's it's like the original sin it's like there's a failure at the heart of the matter but when I can hear my sound or notice my body or notice a, a feeling or sensation in my body. We, with a critical mind, I can go like, I can just be curious and say, could I do that differently? Is there a possibility of doing this differently? Which of course there always is. That's so good. That's powerful. That's, that's the whole thing, right? To be able to be self-critical without, yeah, without being judgmental and saying you're not, you're somehow not worthy or you're, you, you know, you're a bad person, you know, like, no, you have it. There's a thing you're doing and you want to be better at it. So what can I do? Sort of looking at a little more objectively, you know, sort of stepping back a little, a little more detached and work on the thing that you're doing. Yeah. So then what about writing songs? Um, how did this new point of view, this new ability to hear, um, the new sounds you were making with your voice, how did this show up in, uh, what it was that you were writing and composing? So one thing I think clearly my melodies got better. I think I became a much better melody writer. Um, I could write more interesting melodies. I also, I can write for the things that I like to hear. I was no longer writing. I started doing more writing, starting with the music, um, not just about, uh, about the lyrics, not just writing a bunch of clever lyrics and then finding some way to make them music. It started becoming more and more um, musical-based, you know, singing-based. And I, I got better at not obsessing so much about just, I stopped being trying to be so clever. I stopped writing kind of, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, and I can move people now with a, with a, you know, with a vocal thing that I couldn't in, before, which it's a big change. So I don't have to work as hard. I stopped, it stopped having to be, you know, fighting to get someone's approval and, you know, instead just kind of sitting in it, you know, just kind of being there and doing the thing. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing how, um, effort, is not as satisfying as we think it is you know that that when you can actually sit back and rest and enjoy that there is um a satisfaction that is just totally different and you get to be participant and observer at the same time and i i actually think i saw this in you at um what i would call a culminating event uh, in the form of an album release at this venue in Evanston called Space. Could you tell me what you recall about that performance and 
that night? Um, I decided I wanted to make another album, which I hadn't done in a number of years. Um, I wanted to make sort of the album I always wanted to make. I wanted to make kind of a full-on sort of soul album with a horn section and with backup singers and so on. Um, and I spent maybe a year making this record um, with just these incredible musicians uh, playing on it. And then it sort of culminated in this show at Space in Evanston, um, where we had about 200 people come. I had a 12-piece band on the stage. I had a four-piece horn section. I had my three backup singers and Mae Cohn, who's this amazing arranger and singer. She, you know, she sang, she sang with Aretha Franklin, and she arranged all the vocals. So the person who arranged all the harmonies, these sort of old-school soul harmonies, and then the horn players, you know, who play with the OJs, like who did the arrangements, they came. It was like all the original people who made the record with me um and i did specifically because uh, you told me to i did not play an instrument for the first time i've ever done so on stage so i just sang i just it was just my thing they played my songs and i sang um you were like you got to just get out in front just let them do their thing and do your thing um and kind of as the night went on i think i got more and more comfortable and it just you know i've played shows since then but it will I was very aware, like, you know, I mean, it also a band like that, you know, costs a couple thousand dollars just for the band. So um, I knew that I wasn't going to be doing a tour like that anytime soon with a band like that. Um, and it was a it was a high point of my musical life. Like it was the show, you know, in front of in front of the band that, you know, was everything I wanted. I dreamed of kind of as the backing band doing these songs for my record. It was just kind of a magical night. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was incredible to witness and um, such a pleasure to see, like I said, as a culmination of all of your hard work and to have so many people present to witness um, this extraordinary time. And I think about, you know, if we look back at our lives, we can see these moments where um, certainly negative circumstances can change the trajectory of our path, but there are certainly those overwhelmingly positive moments as well and yeah um, i hope that that was one of those for you I'm curious what words you would offer um, your younger, blusterier self, uh, the Andrew who sort of blindly powered through everything. I would say, um, I mean, I would say more than anything, don't be afraid of being uh, of being flawed. You are worthy. You're worthy and you're lovable and you're deserving um, and you're not as fragile as you think you are. You know, because it felt, everything felt so, it's funny because I didn't come across as fragile, but underneath it clearly, you know, I was terrified that if I, if I showed my weakness, that I would break. And I, interestingly, I can see back, I mean, I think I would have been a better at connecting with audiences if I'd been better at being more vulnerable when I was younger. 
Well, look, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I believe the saying goes that youth is lost on the young. Um, but the beauty of being able to look back and reflect is that it offers the potential for wisdom in how we move forward. So yes. I wonder what this all means for how you move forward in the world and as a singer and as a human being. What I think is exciting is that um, what I learned in therapy and in my work with you is that I can learn anything and I know that I can get good at anything. And if I really want to do it, um, I know I know now how to learn to do things. And so this is a this is a sort of a new chapter that's happening for me right now, which is kind of fun and exciting, is that, you know, I can't go tour at the moment because I've got too much going on in my life and my family and so on. Um, a customer of mine a little while back um, asked me if I wanted to audition for a commercial. Um, and and I did and I didn't get it, but it went really well. Um, and so with her guidance, I took some lessons and I, I'm, I have an agent in Chicago and I audition for things. Right now it's on Zoom, but a couple times a week. And, you know, it's still early on in the state in this process, but I am getting so much joy out of the process of learning, you know, and this process of sort of working with a coach. I now know how to do this because of my work with you, because of my way of stripping things down is that it's the same, it's the same process. So, you know, I can do, I can run an audition and then she can give me feedback. I can see when she gave me feedback, kind of going now, I'm just nitpicking. You're still really great. You know, and I'm like, just lay it on me. Tell me everything I'm doing wrong because I can take it. I know that I can do this. I know that I can get good at this. I know that I have the underlying sort of solidness now that it's okay for me to not be good at this because I'm going to be good at this. Um, and that's the thing that I think is exciting to me about sort of my life going forward is that I'm okay with not being good at things now. You know, it just means you got things to learn, so keep working at it. And that's the lesson I feel like for anyone in the arts is like, you got to find a way to know that you're worthy and that you can be really good at this and to also recognize if you're not right now. You know, or if there's something you need to be better at, it's okay. It doesn't mean you can't get there. It doesn't mean all is lost and everything's broken. It means you got work to do. So let's go. Like that's my lesson to myself. <laughs> and if you want a fast track to learning this, your voice is an incredible way to do that. It really is because it's such an expression of yourself. Oh my God. I always yeah. say it's the most efficient, efficient path to learn some of these hard lessons. Yeah, no, it was a life changing time for me. And my work with you was one of the most powerful, profound, moving experiences of my life. And I honestly, like, I will always have such a deep gratitude and love for you for everything you helped me through and everything you gave me. You know, I mean, I cannot believe how fortunate I was to have been introduced to you at that time in my life because it was, I could not express to people around me how life-changing it was. Well, and let me reiterate that um, we were co-conspirators on this journey and your impact on me has been quite profound as well so um, I don't take any of it for granted um, so with that said Andrew I just want to thank you for your willingness and vulnerability and courage in sharing your story around not only your voice but um, your life so thank you so much for this thanks I'm really grateful that you thought of me this has been really fun
Okay, how incredible was that? I mean, he got hit by a truck and he's here to talk about it and to share with us this incredible wisdom. And specifically as it applied to his voice journey, I am just baffled by that and so grateful for it. I would encourage you to go check out andrewkerr.com. It's A-N-D-R-E-W-K-E-R-R.com and check out his music, listen to the progression that he refers to. He's right, some of his lyrics, especially early on in his career, they are clever. But this last album that he's released, it is undeniably his best. He sounds amazing at it, and um, it's a testament to his work and effort. Also, if you want to connect with me more, please visit davinyoungs.com. Follow me on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, etc. at davinyoungs. If you like this podcast, if you like what I'm trying to do, if you want to support this and help it grow, make sure to rate, make sure to review, make sure to subscribe, to like, to share, tell other people that you're listening to it. It really, really makes a difference. And um, it's a way in which we can try to compete with this almighty algorithm. In the meantime, I'm wishing you blessings on your voice journey. And may you know the freedom, the growth, the transformation that only your voice can bring. Peace.